Let's do this. What is virtualization? You're going to learn today. Innovate like a startup. Deliver like an enterprise. I hope you're coffeeed up and ready because it's going to be a great day. I know you're going to dig this. Oh, yeah. You're listening to the Virtually Speaking Podcast with Pedro Aero and John Nicholson. Hey, welcome to the Virtually Speaking Podcast. My name is Pete Fletcher, and joining me as usual is my good friend, Mr. John Nicholson. John, how you doing, buddy? I've been kind of frustrated, and right now to, to solve it, I'm, I'm looking to on Amazon to buy a, a really big rubber duck that I can just yeah. suspend above my monitor. Yeah, as you do. Most people do that. Yeah. <laughs> How's that so turning been, out? Well, I've been trying to stand up this object system, trying to get this lab together, and I'm dealing with a bunch of technology that I'm not really familiar with and like digging through config files and just making real boneheaded mistakes. And I can go annoy one of my colleagues and like waste their time and try to explain it. But really just to unblock it, I just need to explain it to someone and explaining it to a rubber duck wastes my colleagues time less. You know, it helps speed up that that debugging and, and getting to glorious, you know, completed and seeing things deployed. So um yeah, I'm thinking if I can just suspend one here, I can just look up, talk to the mighty rubber duck, and, and yeah. unblock my workflow. Yeah, I think you could do that. You, hey, you might even want to try chat GPT or other generative AI forms to help you answer your questions, but rubber duck is a good first start. Yeah, uh, great segue, John. We're talking uh, not just generative uh, AI. You know, I know chat GPT has been the... the the, the conversation lately for a lot of folks, but I think AI in general is a pretty interesting topic. Uh, and who do you who do you have when you're talking AI? The guy who knows everything about Kubernetes, <laughs> Kelsey Hightower. Hey, Kelsey, welcome back to the podcast. A super non-expert in yeah. <laughs> AI completely, which is perfect for this show. Yeah. Well, you know, it was very intentional, honestly, because the truth is, you know, we've had you on to talk about Kubernetes before, and you, you've been on a million podcasts talking about Kubernetes, and I think you do an amazing job. I don't think we're going to reinvent the wheel here in that topic. But another thing that I think only people on Twitter know about you is the fact that you, you're, you're interested in a lot more than just Kubernetes. I mean, you do the Twitter spaces, which is pretty awesome. For those that are not on Twitter, get on there and, and follow Kelsey and uh, listen to some of his Twitter spaces. There's these community of conversations around different topics. And you do that. You're always doing some very thought-provoking questions on Twitter. Uh, some like, uh, hey, motivation is the secret sauce of productivity. And I love those because, you know, it's high level enough of a thought to have people of every angle come with a different opinion about it. And it really promotes a lot of discussion. So, which my, my sneaky suspicion is that's the reason you do some of those <laughs> is Not to get quite. people I mean, talking. Actually, those, those things were something I was saying in the earlier interview that I had. And so I just took some notes and I didn't want to forget them. Ah. So I just tweeted them. So it's something that comes out naturally during a conversation. And I'm like, you know what? Let me just tweet these without context and see what people do with them. But yeah. it's it's less about the engagement and more about, man, I don't want to lose this thought because it resonated with me. Ah, okay. So it, I was it, wrong. It's, it's technically called a microblogging platform. Like we all, <laughs> it gets called a social media platform, but microblogging is is really what it it's about. And I I like that idea of because if I put it in Confluence or I put it in you know uh, OneNote. 
those are like i don't know the they're like my chest freezer like i'll put something in there and i'll never find it again but you're right if you if you tweet it at the internet you know there's a better chance you can find your thought oh absolutely uh yeah you also do the twitter spaces as i mentioned and uh, that's an interesting one because it's a way to get people from all over the Twitter community to come and, and have a conversation. You usually have guests on and you, you dive deep into various topics. So, but that's definitely not your job. So what is the, uh, what's the passion behind that? What is the, why do you do those Twitter spaces so frequently? Well, to be honest, a lot of them are spontaneous, literally zero days notice. Um, I'll have a thought about something and someone will DM me and say, yo, I'm the person who invented that thing, or I'm the person who was deep into this thing. Yeah, I'm here to answer all the questions. And I might say, look, you want to jump on a Twitter space so we can share this with like everybody. And I have a ton of questions. And so when I do those Twitter spaces, I was like, hey, I know I'm not the domain expert. I've done a little research and I try to get people who others will consider to be experts in a particular space and just let me authentically ask them questions. Right. Here's what I think about this thing. Correct me if I'm wrong. And then what are their insights into this stuff and help me fill in my knowledge gaps? And I think it's just dope to be able to do that because typically I used to just do that with one-on-one. Yeah. I would send them a meeting invite and we would jump on and I would take notes. And I'll be honest, I never really share those notes. I just kind of keep it to develop my own understanding. So now I've been trying to be a little bit better by saying, you know what, if we can share this conversation with other people, uh, let's do it. I like it. I like it. Yeah, that was sort of the idea behind this one. I know you're not the expert in AI, but I know you have an opinion about these things. And uh, I think it's a generic conversation, uh, a generic enough conversation that the three of us can probably have a pretty basic uh, discussion and uh, it might make we might learn something for sure. So uh, AI in general has been around since heck since the since the 50s, if you, if you go way back to the first time the term has ever been used. But uh, and there's obviously been a lot of science fiction movies and, you know, Terminator, all those things around AI in general. Uh, there's certainly been a lot of positives. There's been a lot of really good things, uh, entertainment uh, in the financial, you know, transportation, healthcare, things like that. Lots of advances. Uh, and then there's also some caution, you know, and there's some fears. And uh, there are a lot of people that are against it or think it could be a bad thing. So I'd love to explore some of those with you. Uh, starting with one of the positive ones for me uh, was uh, I recently listened to NPR and there was this discussion around, uh, you know, this this new technology in healthcare with uh, with AI, where just from hearing some, someone's cough, which, by the way, I have a cough right now, uh, I'll try to mute when I cough, but they can listen over the phone, uh, a, a cough, and this AI can determine whether or not you have COVID. Uh, and it's like 99% accurate. And it's a pretty fascinating thing to be able to, you know, and they played the coughs on NPR uh, and you could hear and they sounded exactly the same to me. Uh, but it was, you know, it was enough difference where, you know, in, you know, artificial intelligence was able to determine with almost 100% certainty that this person was in fact COVID positive. So those are I mean, that's just one small example, but there's some pretty cool stuff that's going on with uh, artificial intelligence. Well, I mean, <clears throat> I think the rub is when you say artificial intelligence, like something just became just out of the sky one day, showed up and was like, hey, I'm artificial intelligence. I can tell if people have COVID by listening to them cough. <laughs> and so then everyone's like, oh, my God, what is this magical thing that can understand if people have COVID? What else can it do? Right. So when you start to think of it that way it becomes magic and it's just surrounded by mystery. 
and we're in the era of hype machines and people are going to take that and run with it. We're going to get lost. And really what we're saying is that people, there are some people out there that can probably really do something similar. Like I've met a person who says of all the wine in the world, I forget what level you can get to, but you're supposed to be able to taste wine and tell where it's from or tell what brand it is. And apparently that takes like a decade or more mm. to get to that level. So that means the model you've built up. So if the wine is the data in this analogy and you put it in your mouth and your sensors go off, you've tasted so much wine that your mental model of wine is so good that you can just taste it and say, mm, that's from California, past the gas station on the left. It's like, how do you know this? Because you've been trained. Yeah. And so your model's solid. And so if you were to take that and put it into a computer, and you were to give that computer all the same input data that a human would gather and collect, and you gave it sensors, like the ability to transform something in the real world into data, then of course it can do its best at predicting probability. You said accuracy, which was great. It can get to a certain accuracy of this is true. And so that's great. So when I think about it, it feels just as amazing as taking software and building some tool that allows people to automate the temperature in their home, like a smart thermostat. Yeah. And I think what has happened is that we've gotten bored with technology that just works. Like there's AI and your mapping application. There's probably some model driving some of the tools you use, but you don't think about it anymore because it just works. Now we're saying this thing is trying its best to answer generic prompts and questions. And it turns out we don't care if it's accurate or not. It just sounds good, which is in alignment with some of the people we choose to follow in the world. They ain't accurate either, but it sounds good. And I think that's why we're at this crossroad. Yeah. By the way, John has that level of accuracy with tequila. He can do the exact same thing with tequila. Yeah, but my, my, my skills on wine are, uh, yeah, that'll that'll probably get me drunk if I drink enough of it. Uh, but the from the that accuracy element, I guess how much how much more is the specificity on these general? You talked also about general models. How much better is it becoming, or at what point? I guess do we care on when it's wrong? Obviously, you know if that that model is is going to um, you know tell my car whether or not to make a to brake, I've got different level of concern. You know if it's making medical decisions or if it's just recommending you know which uh, hat i should put on today that'll match my shirt you know obviously if it gets it wrong the consequences is just pete mocking me so like wh where are we seeing that evolve and what are you seeing in terms of like adoption or use cases that are more interesting yeah when you ask a a tool to tell you if this is a cat or a dog and let's say it's wrong okay that's that's probably fine but let's say you're allergic to cats and instead of you verifying if it's a cat or not, you just put your phone app up and says, is this a cat or dog? And it tells you the wrong thing. And then you get sick and like something bad happens. That's dangerous because you would say, hey, I don't want an app to do that. These things have bugs. So who's going to take care of the situation if it goes wrong? So these things are getting way better at predicting if something is or, or isn't. So great. It has a level of accuracy. So does your thermostat. Your thermostat could be broken and you may or may not have a real temperature, but we know if we don't feel right and we put a thermostat in and it's like lower than what it should be, 
you're going to double check that. You're still probably going to go to the hospital because you know it's just a tool. It isn't a, it's like not the end all be all. So we don't try to personify a thermostat, right? We don't do that. But when it comes to AI and you personify it and you say this person should not be allowed to get a mortgage because the AI said you cannot have a mortgage, therefore you don't qualify, that that's dangerous because then you have to ask whose bias is encoded in that model because the model is still trained. It's fed a data set. And so if you make, it's going to be biased. There's no way to avoid it being biased, right? You got to remember that. So whatever data set you feed into this thing is going to be biased. So you want some things to be biased, like that's a dog. Yeah. I've seen all the pictures of all the dogs ever, and I'm pretty sure that's a dog. And great. You're probably going to be right 99.9% .9 of the time. And that's enough to make a lot of decisions in the world. That's cool. So as it gets more reliable, we have to be careful. Just because you jump out of an airplane a million times and the parachute always opens, you probably still want to check that it's been packed correctly and you follow all the safety protocols. Because if you don't, that's when something bad can happen. And that's the risk we have with AI. And the fact that people want to personify AI, that means we start putting it not just in Photoshop, mm -hmm. not just in the video game. We put it in the DMV. We put it in the bank. We put it in all the places that could be detrimental to someone's well-being or life. And that's when it's not a game anymore. And so we got to be careful. So I guess some of this, you know, um, from in terms of where it can make the more dangerous decisions or the ones that, you know, societally can get pretty rough. Um, you know, how do we know where how that model came about? I, I remember seeing some research Hitachi was doing and trying to understand what the influences were on a model. But how often are those models just created, I guess, in a vacuum? And it it starts, you know, inadvertently rejecting loan applications for single mothers or something that as society, we'd say, OK, that's bad. Maybe they are statistically more poor and likely to default. But, you know, we, we shouldn't be going for that outcome or something. Um, we're looking at zip codes and conflating poverty or other uh, demographic data. But how do we, you know, is that something we we want to trust companies to? Is it something we're looking for regulatory framework? Is that something to where we've got to add extra safeguards? Um, where are we, for, I guess, from an ethics basis, how do we not necessarily put the brakes on the adoption of this stuff, but we we safeguard it as it comes in? We need transparency. So this is where a lot of bad systems, because people do this stuff too. We can't just blame the AIs. There yeah. are people who act this way, right? You know, redlining. If you look a certain way, you can't live in this area. But no one knows that that's happening for decades. And you look at an area, it's like, wow, how did this area spontaneously look a certain way across all income levels? That's really hard to do probabilistically and by chance. And so it turns out the banks and the real estate agents are all in cahoots. And they're like, hey, you don't look like the people we want to live here. So loan denied. And over time, they realize that if you have a certain last name, they don't even need to see your face. They can just make the same decision and statistically probably weed out all the people they want. And if they miss you during that part of the phase, they can definitely do it at the signing table. Like, oh, something came up. You're no longer qualified. And so people have already walked around with these models. So now we get to the point where we say, let's say the same bank or real estate company decides that they want to have a model automate the loan application process. Yeah. So we can kind of see like, hey, where did this thing come from? Can I see the data set? And when it becomes transparent and we look at some of the results, people start asking questions. 
not to blame any company, but I think there was one large tech company that said they use something like this to help with the HR process to filter job candidates. And you kind of noticed that there was a bias towards what candidates were making it to even the call stage. And so we need transparency to say, hey, if you're going to unleash this AI to start making decisions, we need to see the results. So show us all the applicants and show us all the decisions. And humans are pretty good at saying, um, I got a feeling. Right. This smells wrong. <laughs> this, this, this is wrong. So the other side of this equation is we're going to have to have people, society, judges, courts, our peers say this isn't right. Well, we say, well, we have the perfect AI model and it's not our fault. It's the computers. Like, I don't care what the computer's doing. As a society, we said, this isn't right. So stop using the computer or come up with a model that reflects what we want society to be. Yeah. And I think that's the other side of the equation. Yeah, most bit large companies, uh, I've looked up a bunch of different of the uh, the AI principles, the uh, the AI frameworks, and they all have very similar, you know, pillars, you know, fairness, uh, reliability and safety, uh, in inclusiveness, diver you know, diversity and inclusiveness, privacy and security, accountability and transparency. Uh, I think the the tricky part is, is who determines what's fair, who determines who's included, uh, you know, and all these things. I think... Uh, you know, I think these are really good, you know, it's a really good framework to stand by, but it just, I think it gets, it can't be perfect. And, uh, you know, as we say, like, who's worse, the AI making these decisions or some of the humans behind the, uh, <laughs> the well, frameworks and themselves? As long as you can, as long as you can, you know, analyze the output data, it may be better than what came before. I mean, we all complain about the credit score system and its unfairness, and it does have systemic problems. Uh, but you go back to what it was before it actually was regulated is it literally was just like rumors about people. You know, you could be like, oh, yeah, Pete's promiscuous. Don't give him a bank loan. <laughs> That's something that would actually be in your bank file in 1968 or your, you know, these systems before. So it, it is something of you're right. Looking at that output data. This also reminds me of a conversation we had previously talking about on software, trying to get kind of a like a cereal box, a, a list of ingredients of what's in this package or what's in this delivered um, is there, you know, kind of something for a similar model, I guess we could try to look at for, or how we look at, analyze the outputs of models is look at, you know, have like a cereal box ingredient list of, Hey, what went in and what came out? Well, the, here's the challenge. Like data doesn't mean fact. That's the problem. You have some people that live in like a different country and all they know about another country is what they see on TV. So the stream of data feeding your mental model of the world is wrong or it's propaganda. Maybe you're watching the wrong news network or something. Yeah. And so your whole mental model is not from experience, not rooted in the fact, but just this one data stream. And so then when you go visit the other country, you've already been programmed to be like, oh, okay, this group of people is this way. And you meet a few people and they start to challenge your mental model. And you hear people say weird things like, oh, I didn't, they're so nice. I was suspecting them to be savages or something. <laughs> and so imagine a data source that is also wrong. And the whole model is being trained and maybe you have reinforcement learning where humans go and, you know, try to tweak it to kind of nudge it into the right direction. But what happens when the data is wrong? So I think a big challenge is like, do you even have accurate data and who's producing this data? So a hit song, right? We would go back historically and say, these songs are hits. Why? Because they sold the most records. They won the most awards. Well, there's a lot of songs and that were awards. Marketing budgets, maybe? <laughs> exactly. 
So when the model's wrong, it's making decisions on the wrong thing. So then, of course, when you ask it to create a hit song, and it's like, wow, you know what? That was a hit song in the 90s. Yeah. When you add additional context. But if you try to produce that now, you're going to be off. So I think also the staleness of data comes into to a big play. Like a lot of people poke holes at Chad GPT's responses because it doesn't know that Elon Musk is the CEO of Twitter right now. Right. And so it doesn't have that context. So it kind of shows you that it doesn't have this kind of real-time ability. Maybe they'll fix it with the plugins and being able to reach out to different knowledge databases to complement its answer, but it isn't that. Right. And so I think that's why I think this is so important. It's like, what data was it trained on? And this is why a lot of people are asking for transparency. How did you arrive at this answer? And please cite your sources. So yeah. thinking about this, it, it sounds almost like, you know, the if you're looking for the job, if you're looking to make money in this, if you're looking to be successful in this, I know everyone's currently focusing on specific models. Um, there's also been some arguments and some compelling ones that maybe having the data set to train on and some of the proprietary data set owners, maybe the ones who get rich or that, but it sounds like you, you need a lot of data scientists on the front end to make sure what you're feeding, like that may be the job that's the bigger job or the more exciting job to look at if you do want to work in this space is figure is is sanitizing and, and rationalizing some of the data going in or making or verifying the outputs um if you're guessing yeah when you're guessing yeah remember this thing is it's kind of guessing so a record producer has intuition and they have a mental model of the world from growing up and they make music a certain way they don't know if you're going to like it or not but they're going to try their style and there are millions of people also doing the same thing. We're just going to kind of coalesce around one or two of those people and they just make hits. And you ask them like, why do you make hits? They don't really know. They are who they are and they make the kind of music that they make, end of story. Now, if you want to guess, you can try to take all the hits ever made and see if you can find some patterns. And of course you need a lot of data scientists because what data do you need for this? Do you just need the song? Do you need the drum kit? Do you need the actual keyboard they used to make that track? Do you need to know what temperature it was when the music was being made? Because maybe the temperature has something to do with it. Mm. So you don't know. You're just guessing. So of course you might say the more parameters, the more data we get, it will help us make better guesses. And so then how do you find out if your guess is right? So let's say you get a good model. Like it turns out you really need to know what the producer was wearing. That's the thing that makes the model produce more accurate hits. You, you don't know. So this, this kind of reinforcement learning where you thought you had something, but the model is producing songs no one likes. You're like, something's off. How about we add what, yeah, let's add what they're wearing. And it turns out that's the biggest thing and it, it works, right? Hypothetically. Yeah. And so now you have this and now this thing is spinning out hit records. So when you're guessing, you need a lot more data. You need a lot more data scientists because they're going to have to fit that model over the data set until they find the right pattern that's going to allow them to predict the next hit. But if you're a single person, there is no guarantee that it's going to be a good song or not. It may not even be a good song today, but then after you die and then 10 years go by, all of a sudden people are in love with the song because the conditions and the context changed. Mm -hmm. That's the part where... AI is just not the same as what a human does. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I will say chat GPT specifically, uh, it does get some a lot of things right. Like certainly before this podcast, I asked it, uh, hey, do you know Kelsey Hightower? Uh, and chat GPT was like, uh, yes, of course. Kelsey Hightower is a well-known, uh, you know, man in the industry, in the tech industry. He's a developer advocate at Google. He's made significant contribu- contributions to the field. I'm not a developer advocate at Google. See, it, see, it's, it's dated. It's dated. I've been promoted <laughs> and I don't know chat GPT doesn't know me. So yeah. that's the first order of the lie, but that's yeah. what I mean. If you try to personify this thing, it starts off by lying. Yeah, well, we trust people like there's an inherent thing of like, oh, Pete said this, like there's an inherent. Oh, that's calm. If you told me a computer said this, I'm just infinitely more skeptical Um, or, you know, it, it's one of those things to where, you know, or even no offense. But, you know, if you say a Google search told me this, I'm like, OK, a little bit of confidence, but not not the same as Pete, who I assume had some level of, you know, verification or my chat. GPT is awesome. It can do things that most people can't do. Yeah. Right. Most people have never written a pretty compelling blog post before in their whole life. And so if you're tasked with writing a blog post, and you've never done it before. Imagine asking something for help that has probably been trained on all the blog posts ever published on the Internet. It's probably going to produce an amazing first draft. This is a definitely a breakthrough. It should be celebrated. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I tried this and it, it got about 80 percent of the way there. I mean, there were a couple of things that need to be corrected. And I was briefly worried for a job. And then I started thinking, oh, this thing's probably been trained on like the content that people like me produce. So as long as I'm creating the content, they get trained. I'm not going to lose my job to this thing. But. Well, I mean, you might. I don't It doesn't sound good, but you, you might because thankfully we're, we're I do other things out, blogging, but <laughs> we're figuring out that most people are just copying and pasting stuff all the time. Like, oh, I had Jet GPT write my unit tests. At what point do we question the type of unit tests we're actually writing before the libraries and frameworks we start to use start to generate them for us? Yeah. So I think ChatGPT is helping us identify very common baselines that if I can just give it a prompt and it can spit it out, the value will go down for the people doing that type of work because there's now a floor price on it. Yeah. Right. Now we know that it can be done pretty accurately for less money. And so I'm not likely to pay someone to do it if I can get to a close approximation of that as well. So that we got to pay attention, but I'm hoping we used to have that phrase when I was a system administrator, um, be careful because I automate you out of a job. But those that have ever done it, typically, if society's ready for it, if we automate ourselves out of these jobs that something like ChatGBT is going to be able to do, do we all get better jobs in the future or not? It's uh, I was I was watching a YouTube uh, playlist that William Lamb produced recently. It was installing every version of VMware's core hypervisor back to 1.0. He built them out in a nested lab. And the amount of steps that were involved in the old version, I mean, you had to sit there and hand chisel partition tables and like do all these things that like you just you don't think about. Now you put in a thing, you mash in or, or you have a kickstart and you know, it got me, it really speaks to that. Yeah, there's a lot of automation that comes in, but we've all wandered off to go do something for ma- more valuable. One thing I saw you had a tweet about that kind of got me thinking is um, particularly the infrastructure, you know, ops trying to get chat GBT to write, you know, YAML or something like that. It's great that it can spit this stuff out, but what about the life cycle of it? What about, you know, verifying it for security or compliance or other things? What about also, um, should we just be 
you know, if, if you're heavily using this kind of like heavily using, you know, copy paste from Stack Exchange before, should you not have been using a platform as a service or some type of other system that was just doing the was helping you build this stuff automatically? Um, is this going to enable more people to build, you know, kind of sketchy tree houses made out of recycled lumber rather than, you know, looking at housing? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll pull up the tweet. You know, the tweet was, if you're using generative AI tools to write infrastructure code or YAML files, that's a hint. You're working at the wrong level of abstraction. Instead of guessing, consider using a template to abstract away the details and only expose the decisions humans need to make. And so when you think about that, let's say you're new to something like Kubernetes or the cloud and you reach for something like Terraform and you say, man, to configure that database in Amazon, I got to write all of this Terraform. And you say, well, okay, ChatGPT, what do you tell it? You say, create a database that can hold this many rows of data. And it goes and says, you know what? Based on all the parameters and my mental model of the world, here's the Terraform you want. Now, if you don't understand Terraform, you're probably going to take it and blindly say, or it looks good to me. And you run it, and now it creates the database in the wrong zone. It actually fudged one of these important parameters that really deals with cost. It just used the default value for charge me 10x more because I need PCI compliance fed ramp thing, right? It didn't know you didn't it's want going to that. use the NAT gateway and put it in East One. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. All of those things. So you don't know any better. So you apply it and then you get the bill. And when the bill comes, you're like, you're in shock because you have no idea why this thing is the way it is. And so now you're forced to go learn all the things you thought you could ignore because this thing was trying to predict what you want and you don't even know what you want, but you kind of got something close to it. But when you think about infrastructure and where we're headed with all these declarative APIs, one thing I learned from one of those Twitter spaces, I had a guy on named Gary Marcus and I read his book, Rebooting AI. And he's very much an AI skeptic, but I wanted to ask like, hey, what is the alternative to generative AI? And I had another guy on the, on the call as well named Gary Booch from IBM, distinguished engineer. And he's been studying kind of AI and ML for a long time. And one thing he reminded me was that there are some approaches where you don't need to guess. And when you don't need to guess, symbolic programming is great, if else then, because you know exactly what it's supposed to be. Right. You have a security policy you want to implement. You're not trying to guess what the packet is. You know what the packet is and that it should be discarded. No guessing required. So in a symbolic world, we would say, I want a database in this region with this much memory, and it will adhere to my company's compliance rules. That's symbolic. You don't need to generate that. You know what that is. And so what you would do instead is you would use a template that has all the right parameters that are non-negotiable at your organization, at least at that given point in time. And then what you would do is say, the only values that I'm going to allow a human to change are these three. And so it goes from code generation to giving me a bit of metadata, create a database with this metadata. So whether that's a chat GPT prompt, speaking into a Google Home, or just writing a command on, a, on, on your terminal, right? those interfaces start to coalesce to be the same thing. And instead of generating, you're using a symbolic approach that's probably going to be easier to audit easier to inspect and verify that it's doing exactly what you want 
versus getting this wrong thing underneath the covers. Yeah, it's a good point. And and I think some of the, you know, using templates is is uh and doing creating it like you said with exact calls is going to certainly be a more accurate way. I think some of the the counters on that tweet on that tweet that you mentioned, there were some folks that said, well, for folks that don't know, uh, this is a good way to get started and get and and to learn, but I, I do think that there is a uh, you know, there's a there's a fine line between just using it to learn, but then also depending on it and all of a sudden making those big decisions <laughs> that could essentially be wrong. Yeah. So the danger part is like you don't know how Terraform works. You don't know how the cloud resource works, but you're like, Chat GPT, give me a production database. And it's like, here you go. And you're like, cool, I trust Chat GPT in production and you deploy it. Yeah. What yeah. the hell is that? That that's a little dangerous. Sure is. Yeah. Well, so, and it, I mean, that's fundamentally why you that specific scenario there's an entire you know field of database as a service platforms that exist that will you know the the checkbox is already checked to create backup eat copy of that backup into a bucket somewhere else you know and all those various things uh monitoring is already configured all those things like and and this is something to where if you are going to learn how to stand up a database the hard way you probably should learn like what all those settings are or be the person building that template for that cloud management or that database as a service or whatever in your environment is doing that compliance or if you're just a dev and you want to you know build things you don't actually want to learn how to stand up postgre in a clustered environment then you know chat gpt you're right probably is the wrong tool like there is you either need to kind of go the hard way or or not like we don't really want generative ai writing you know driver code in c or something but that here. first draft is dope you know yeah. that thing where i know aws well i know what iam is i know what vpcs are i know all of that i can click around the console to get that to happen but I don't know Terraform. And so you say, ChatGPT, generate me all the Terraform. And it kind of gives you all the bits. And you look through them and be like, ooh, um, ChatGPT, show all the default options as well. So it regenerates everything. And you see all the defaults. And now you're like, OK, this is everything. And now let me go through line by line and audit and maybe tweak from there. And then maybe you let someone with some Terraform skills review and it's like, oh, you should really package this up as a module and only expose the key values that you want people to change with this configuration. I think that is a good flow for a lot of people that are just kind of getting started with one tool or the other. This sounds yeah. like how to this sounds like explaining to someone how you learn to Google. Because you go back to like the early days of Google, you had to use like occasionally some regex operators to like filter stuff down. And you had to kind of like think, okay, this is a sketchy .ru website. I'm not going to click on that. Like, let's keep scrolling. But then over time, you know, as as it got smarter, the you know the the search engine got smarter at interpreting the you know random garbage of nouns I throw into it. Um, I you know I actually had to think a little less. And so maybe as this evolves, it'll get better. Um, I mean, the term in, in, people are using for this is prompt engineering, right? This concept that. ChatGPT needs a little help to understand what you really want from it. And so there are some people that are discovering it's how you ask the question as well. It's just like making a SQL query. You can ask a question that's going to result in a full table scan. It's going to cost a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, but there's a way that you can be a little bit more specific and get a better result set back. And I think prompt engineering, yeah. yeah. And honestly, some software developers, if they're being honest, you know, how to do X, Y, Z, that's your prompt and whatever comes back, you copy and paste and off you go. 
yeah there's a lot of copy and paste because i know how to run a formula for it you know excel ends up being the clutch database but that prompt engineering that that is kind of an interesting thing because on one hand you've got you know um pre-filtering i guess what you feed into it to try to work with a general model versus the other thing that we're hearing about that people are trying to develop models that'll be more specific so rather than I know we're all excited about this general model, but take the same approaches towards more specific data sets, more filtering of data sets. I guess, do you do filtering more on the the data that's used to train the model or do you do more filtering on the front or which one wins, I guess, in the longer term? Yeah, I think you're kind of talking about the difference of something like, like uh, GitHub's Copilot versus like ChatGPT, right? One is going to be hyper-focused on generating code and maybe it's going to be dialed in to do a better job there. Uh, because you got to put safeguards in some of this stuff, right? One safeguard that may come in the future is copyright, yeah. right? Should copyright be part of the decision? If you know that this code is going to match something that has a copyright or a license that could get you in trouble, then you may decide that I won't return that response. And I have to give you something a little bit more inefficient because that will get you in trouble. So, like, so there's got to be more than just ask it questions and take whatever response. And I think even the OpenAI folks talk about this, that they have to put safeguards around this thing because it starts saying crazy things that can get everyone into a bad but, or tough but, situation. I mean, it sounds crazy to say this, but like, you know, actually having a filter somewhere that says like, here's a copy of Mein Kampf. Never read this, never <laughs> include this in your, yeah. never use this. Like, just don't, you know, yeah. having you know, negative score this, but you, you talk about the copyright. That's an interesting angle. Cause on one hand, I think some of our own internal policies they've recently been coming out with, and this is fun watching companies, you know, anytime a new technology or method comes flail wildly, um, that they said that like, Hey, this is great. Um, don't use it to ship production code, but do on marketing, like use it for first drafts and ideas, please don't copy paste it without reading it. Right. Um, but like on the, the, you know, we talk about the copyright on code and things like that, but one kind of approach I saw that was interesting is Adobe is uh, they're building, they've got a system that you can use and create images, but they've a hundred percent trained it on images that they own and they include as a license if you use the product. And so they've, they've created kind of like a safe box that you can go develop something in there. And as long as you use their tool and you pay them for it, um, you're, you're not going to end up accidentally stealing somebody's art, which is kind of a, an interesting spin on it. Yeah, I mean, I think society is quite not in a place. We're not in the Star Trek world where everyone has what they need, replicators and all of these things. We're not there, right? So for a lot of people, they spend their whole lives to produce something that they hope to profit from. And when it's taken away from them and then sold at scale and they can no longer benefit from that work, it's, it's challenging. It's a hard pill to swallow. And the extreme example I've been seeing like super recently, not just something writing lyrics like your favorite artist, not something that's generating photos in the style of your favorite artist, but something that is full out imitating the artist's voice and- Oh yeah, you write hater. lyrics and then it steals the voice, you know? Yeah, that's... so now it's like, oh, I have Eminem on my song and wow. it sounds really close and no one can tell whether it's real or not. and. You generate new lyrics, but now the performance sounds like Eminem. And if you're Eminem, that's my voice. Yeah, that's Image my rhyme style. Everything. Yeah. And so at that point, should that be a copyright violation, right? Should that be illegal? And I don't know if we've really thought through that a lot. And I think 
there's going to be a lot of people who say, yes, you cannot copyright my voice and my likeness. I mean, I think we've already had some of those things before, but I don't know if that's super clear. So until then, everyone is just running with it. I'm sure there's a will of real Slim Shady please stand up joke in there somewhere, but I'm not going to go there. <laughs> definitely, definitely <laughs> is. But I think that's what we're going to start dealing with. And if you're a software developer, you know, I've, I'm one of those software developers that when I push something to GitHub, if you want to copy paste my code, hopefully you do the right thing with the license. But I'm so, yeah. I feel I'm a small guy. I'm not going to try to sue you over it. But in some organizations, that's not the case. And we're going to have to deal with it. So um, chat GPT, though, one, John, you had you had sort of compared it to Google earlier in general, like doing like a Google search. But one of the things that chat GPT self explains itself as or self describes itself as trying to be, you know, to provide more human like answers um, to, to questions. And um, and there are some companies that are actually using it as sort of a human interaction. I mean, there are some companies that use virtual agents to respond like humans. I mean, we've all dealt with them in, you know, for customer service and things like that. But, you know, there, there's something that's trending now is internally having like intranets being managed by, uh, by AI. Like they scan your entire SharePoint and all of your, you know, maybe Workspace ONE and they know all of your information. And then the, you know, the, the employee, instead of having to search through the whole company, can just go to this virtual assistant and say, hey, what is the employee you know, vacation schedule, you know, and then it comes and produces that because it's done the the training to learn all that stuff. But companies like Snap, Snapchat, they're actually incorporating chat GPT uh, to actually be like chat buddies for people, like to actually communicate like humans. And I feel like that gets into the, uh, the, the little bit of the creepy factor. Like, you know, there have been people that talk about whether, people you know, need a, friends, man. People need friends. <laughs> well, there's a thing called the uncanny value, like uh, in the world of AI, where they say like something's crossed the line of trying to be a little too humany. You know, it's one. But it's thing not it's, quite there. It's it's you get the mega creepy factor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, when I was a kid, I used to care about what happened to Zelda. I didn't want <laughs> them to die. Like I was like really trying to save this person's life and be very careful. And so I think as humans, we've we've kind of had this relationship with machines where we do tend to personify them and treat them as humans. I think the part that gets tricky is when you're being tricked, like on Twitter. Some people are like debating with the bot yeah. back and forth. And then some people say, hey, oh. you know that's a bot, right? <laughs> right. And they're like, oh, my God, I've been debating this I... thing for an hour. Yeah. I actually have like a really uncomfortable story on that. So my freshman year at college, I set up a chat bot with Rogerian questioning for my, I think it was ICQ or whatever we used back in the stone ages. And it would just like ask them some a question back about what they had real simple thing. And I, I borrowed it from some, I found it somewhere. And um, there was this girl that I was kind of interested in who started like messaging me and she proceeded to like basically get in an argument and I come back, I was gone to lunch or something. I come back two hours later and there's this like slowly progressing angrier and angrier conversation that went on for like an hour and a half. And I was like, by the way, you know, that was a bot, which definitely made that girl not want to go on a date with me. But <laughs> yeah, the argument with the arguing with the bot or that or, you know, People also, but that's been around for a while. Like, you know, you, you talk to, uh, you call your cable company and you get the, the voice that's unnaturally chipper and weird. And you just, you know, progressively start yelling at it so you can get to a real person. Um, at what point do, does it go from, we're upset about these, you know, these bots or that, or, you know, we get into that, that rage or that angry situation to, we actually think positive things about it. I mean, look, for me, 
when I saw all the hype around this iteration of AI and, and chatbots in particular, it just made me want to go outside. Touch grass. Yeah. Just, yeah, just, just like literally go outside, go and do things that will become the data set. Right. This data set has to come from somewhere. Like when you watch TV, you notice that the people aren't watching TV too. <laughs> yeah. Right. You, you wouldn't want to watch a show about people watching TV. You'd be like, this is literally the dumbest show in the world. All they're doing is watching TV. Mm -hmm. And then that's a moment of reflection. Like, wow, I'm sitting here watching TV and this isn't interesting. And so for me, it's like, hey, maybe I should go outside a bit more. Chat GPT now to me is the new baseline. This is where these skills and techniques are being democratized. The best writer's way of constructing sentences will be in the hands of the average person. We went from spell checkers to autocorrect to now you're going to get the ability to sit next to your favorite writer and have them guide you through your first draft. This is cool, but it also tells me that that means there's going to have to be room for new exploration of like techniques and styles and just trying something new or if we feel this excited about artificial intelligence, boy, we should be over the moon for real intelligence. So I'm hoping that real people would say one day, I'm going to go outside and I'm going to build my own model. I'm going to train my own mental model by submerging myself in the earthly, worldly data set. I'm going to go climb that mountain and breathe the air and see if I can tell the difference between clean air and pollution by just standing outside. So I'm hoping that that's what happens. I like that. I like that. I think that's actually a pretty good place to uh, to bring this, to land this plane, if you will. That's actually a really good uh, <clears throat> point. Uh, uh, and I will open it up for closing thoughts from either of you. But yeah, I think that's a really good point. This is an exciting technology. AI has been around for a really long time. I mean, we've used it in ways like some, you know, the same people that are afraid of you know, the Amazon Echo listening to their conversations will carry their phones all day and have it listen to them and not realize that AI is working in so many ways. Uh, you know, the same people that are, you know, you know, w completely comfortable with going to a kiosk uh, to take care of their entire flight check in, you know, if there was a robot doing that exact same task for them, they would be like, no, 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 I don't want this. I just want to talk to the human because of the fear factor. But this stuff has been around us for many years. Uh, and I think I think it's all exciting in its own way. But at the end of the day, like yourself, uh, <laughs> I think it's uh, the, the more I look at some of this stuff, and it is exciting, the more I do want to touch the grass, throw a football and, uh, and, and not watch TV, but actually do something in real life. I, I, my my closing thought is is what's fun is you know being in tech and spending probably too much time on Twitter is you watch a lot of hype cycles you really do, um, and there has been a lot of like I mean AI has been something that's been hyped for a while and a lot of times you're like okay what does this do oh it's just an if then statement or oh it's you know AI and storage oh it does tiering like okay cool like it's been around for decades guys but this is something that it does seem like there's real applications on. There's been a lot of tech in the past 10 years. It's been kind of hyped and talked about way too much that like you, you look back and you're like, did that produce anything? Did that actually matter? Like, man, a lot of human effort was spent and a lot of capital deployed on those things. This actually looks like it might actually do something like I'm not even sure if it's good or evil, but like it'll do something. And so that's that's exciting. But uh, 
yeah, I'm going to go to the Arboretum and go walk around the trail now. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, the thing that the thing that it will do is, you know, people tend to rally behind similar ideas. And so if everyone's using these tools for their first draft, then there may not be very much difference between the final copy that even the best writers start to produce. And we'll look around and all the movies will look the same. All the songs will sound the same. Because we kind of see this now, right? When you hear a hit, that becomes the sound. And all the artists and producers want to go chase the sound. Yep. And every once in a while, an anomaly will occur. And someone will say, I'm just going to do something different. I know what's popular. I know what works. But I'm just not going to do that. I'm just going to go be different on purpose. And so I'm wondering if this is going to remind us that we need to go and just be different on purpose. And I think what's going to happen is that's going to take a lot more effort than what people are excited about right now, which is put this thing in there and let it do the majority of your work and you copy and paste it and pass it on. Some people are going to want the different thing. And if I'm doing the different thing, there's no way I want that to be in the model. I'm not ready for the different thing to be the normal thing because I want to run with it for a while. That's going to make me unique. That's going to let me stand out from the crowd. And so I think there's going to be this weird dynamic where, great, I love the fact that we're going to democratize a lot of stuff for a lot of people. That's good. But hopefully we don't ruin the ability to be different. I love it. I love it. Principal developer of Google, Kelsey Hightower, thank you so much for joining us on Virtually Speaking, my friend. 